Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, as I always do, thank you for being here on Sunday morning for the School of the Word. And I don't say that out of rote or necessity. I say it out of genuine gratefulness that you are here. Um, there's just, I cannot get over the fact that studying the Word of God and reading it and meditating upon it and learning it is singularly the most significant thing with prayer and applying the Word in our lives that we have to do before our God. Amen? So thank you so much. Thank you so much for your attendance this morning. Well, today we're going to begin getting into chapter 3. As far as I know right now, chapter 3 will divide it into two sections. We'll have the section concerning uh, the announcement of the uh, Messiah, verses 1 to 12 today, and then next week we'll deal with verses 13 to 17, the anointing of the Messiah and the accreditation of the Messiah. And so that's where we'll be going this morning and next uh, Sunday morning. Then the Sunday morning of uh, Christmas morning, we will not have a Sunday school class, but we'll have a service at 10 on Christmas morning. We'll also have a service at uh, on Saturday morning. I think it's the same time, isn't it, Bill? 10 o'clock to about, what, 11, 11.30 or so, Saturday morning and then Sunday morning. So we'll have this class this week and next week and then the following week. Have I gotten my dates correct? The following week will be Christmas. We will not have a class on Christmas morning. Father, thank you so much. What a glory. Father, what revelation, what understanding, what joy. That you have poured into us your presence. That which Israel sought for that which the prophets spoke about. Father, that which the tabernacle and the Leviticus legislation was all about, about one thing, coming into your presence, seeing you face to face in fellowship. Father, that's the purpose that moved you to create. And Father, as we study Matthew, we begin to see this morning the culmination in the birth of Jesus as we've already looked at it, and then the coming forth of this man to begin to be the face of God upon the face of the world, in the face of the world. Father, what a, what a magnificent work. What a great understanding and revelation. Father, we pray that as we go through the study of your word, Father, that you are enlarging moment by moment every day the grandeur of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Father, enlarge for us every single day. Enlarge yourself for us in our understanding in our appreciation, in our participation with you in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, chapter 3, 
we've called the presentation of the Messiah. And this morning I'm going to divide the chapter as follows, as I've already said, verses 1 to 12. We're going to talk about the preparation for the Messiah. God prepares the way. And then next week, verses 13 to 16, the anointing of the Messiah. And then verse 17, the accreditation of the Messiah. So let's read the first 12 verses of chapter 3 of Matthew. Preparing the way for the Messiah. God prepares the way. God blows the trumpet, if you would. Blow a trumpet in Zion. My son, my king is here to begin the greatest ministry to bring my people back to my purpose so that I and my people may dwell in intimate, loving, relational fellowship forever. And so we talk about the preparation of that this morning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I like that kind of a preacher sometimes. Sometimes we need that kind of preaching. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clean his dressing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, let's look at this part of the preparation, the announcement, if you would, of the coming of the Messiah. And remember this as we look at this. Century after century after century after century, the prophets have been saying, He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. They've been saying this century after century. Century after century after century after century, the people have been hoping, is this when he will come? Will he come now? Is he here yet? And so the entire hope of Israel from its inception as a nation in chapters 19 and 20 in Exodus at Mount Sinai, The entire cumulative hope of this nation has been for this prophet to come who would deliver God's people and institute them as God's nation. Is he coming? Is he coming? 
When is he coming? Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. And here he is. Here he is. So let's take the first six verses. I'm sorry, first ten verses. And I want to discuss six aspects of John's ministry as we go through these first ten verses of the first twelve verses. So I'm going to break down the first ten verses into six sections, if you would. Number one, the prophet, John the Baptist. You see, in those days, John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? But the time had come for God to raise up a prophet who would prepare his way and for the prophet. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like unto me. And so that's often called the prophet in the Old Testament. That prophet about whom Moses spoke, who would come after Moses, who would be the prophet who would lead the people into the presence of God and who would accomplish all the purpose of God for his people. And Moses is telling them, I'm not that prophet. That prophet is coming. And so the people are looking continually for the prophet. That's why you see when you read the gospel, when the people are trying to figure out who Jesus is, could he be the prophet? Well, what do you mean? Could he be that prophet of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, I think it is. I think it's verse 15. The prophet who Moses talked about who would come after Moses, who would be like Moses, but of course, who would fulfill everything that Moses was doing because what Moses did was a shadow or a picture, but this prophet would be the one who would do it in reality. And so the time had come to raise up this great prophet, And in order to raise him up, God will send a messenger to prepare the way for the people for the coming in of this prophet. This was typical. When any time a king came into the region, what happened? There was a preparation. If the president of the United States was coming to New Orleans today, there's a preparation. The interstate is shut down for blocks away. You know, everything is changed. There is a great preparation for the leader. And this is a standard way of doing it. We prepare for him. And so this is God's way. To signify the coming in of the new creation. Remember, the coming of the Messiah, he is the one who will be the king of the kingdom of God. He will be the one who will initiate and inaugurate and establish the new creation. That new creation that takes God's purpose back and establishes it as effective and ongoing forever that was begun in the original creation in Genesis 1 through 3. But remember, that creation fell because of sin. And so God, from that point, from Genesis 3, 6, when Adam ate, God begins to move forward irrevocably moving forward to bringing in the new creation. And you see pictures and types and shadows of that new creation throughout the Old Testament. Finally, the king is here, the one who will establish forever that new creation. He's being announced today. And so to signify the coming in of the new creation in the kingdom of God, John's birth was a result of God's creative power in Elizabeth. Remember John the Baptist? He was the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And remember, Elizabeth was barren. And so when you see these women who are barren in the Old Testament, and you have several of them, you may remember Sarah. You remember Rachel. You may remember Hannah. You may, may remember some of these women. God uses the barrenness of these women 
to show that what I am doing, I am picturing a new creation. I am picturing that which I will do as my creative intervention into the natural. I will bring about my purpose into the natural, and I will create in these women a child where naturally this woman is not going to have a child. She will not become pregnant. And I'm doing this as a signal to you that what's going to occur is going to have something to do, is going to announce, to move forward, to be a picture of the creation, the new creation which God will establish in his own son. So Elizabeth is barren. But the one who will announce this is going to be born of Elizabeth, this older lady, this cousin of Mary, as a signal, something new. The new is here. And so Elizabeth is barren, as you see in Luke. And her husband's name is Zechariah. You remember Zechariah. Now listen to what the word says, how Zechariah announces the birth of John. You have to go to Luke for that, but I'm going to read it to you. Listen to how Zechariah announces the birth of John. I'm not going to go into the details of what happened. You'll have to just read from Luke chapter 1 to see the activity there. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 76 to 80, he's speaking about his own son. And he says, and you, child, will be called, I'm sorry, the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. I actually have some biblical references there that are out of place, but that's right. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 40, verse 3. You're going to be the one who will be the trumpet blower for the coming king to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And so here's a child. Again, the child is reminiscent of the child of Isaiah chapter 7, the child of Isaiah chapter 9. He is a picture of that child. This prophet will... This prophet John will announce the prophet. And so you see the, the similar pictures here. Now, what does Jesus say about John? Why is John so significant? Listen to what Jesus says about John in Matthew eleven eleven. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Why was John the Baptist considered the greatest prophet of the Old Testament? by Jesus. He said, those who are born of women. Now, we're including, remember, Isaiah. We're including Moses. We're including Abraham. I mean, think who who is in that statement, those born of women. Think of the men of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. Think of who is in that statement. And what does Jesus say? You can take them all. And as great as all of these men were, these men who were raised up for my purpose, none of them, none of them, none of them were greater than John the Baptist. Well, well, we certainly, no, 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 Moses certainly, no, none of them were greater than John the Baptist. And yet, what did John the Baptist do? What miracles did he perform? I mean, charismatic people have to remember this too. 
We believe in miracles. Trust me, we believe in miracles. But the greatness of us as God's people is not doing miracles. What miracles did John the Baptist perform? Did he heal anybody that we know of? Did he raise anybody from the dead? Did he walk on water? Did he speak in tongues? Did he do any of this that we know of? Nothing is recorded. But he did the greatest miracle that any of us can ever do. Remember John chapter 1 verse 29. This is the greatness of John the Baptist. Remember John chapter 1 verse 29. What does it say? And John pointed to Jesus and he said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about it. Every prophet, every man of God, every person who love God and who serve the purposes of God since the beginning of the fall, and especially those men who were raised up as prophets who were anointed specifically for the purpose of announcing the Messiah will be coming. Every one of them would have given everything he had to have been able to see and to say, there is the prophet. There is the prophet, the Messiah. Every one of them yearned for that. Every one of them. And yet none of them saw him. And every one of them had to do it. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And John the Baptist singularly has been given the most awesome privilege and revelation of every prophet combined to say, he's here. There he is. And we have to look at our own lives and make sure. Because what does Jesus say about us when he rose from the dead, ascended? What did he say? And you shall be my witness. Remember that? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world. Remember that? Matthew 28. John was the first witness to the Messiah. There he is. He points the people to the Messiah. That's our job. We are now, as it were, John the Baptist kind of ministry, pointing people to the Messiah so that everything about my life and everything about the way we live individually and corporately, that everything about it collectively is to say, there is Jesus or here is Jesus in me. That's what the ministry of being a charismatic Pentecostal, spirit-filled believer is all about. And then it has the extra blessings of so much more of ministry and of healings and speaking in tongues and doing miraculous things of the Lord and having revelation and understanding and gifts of knowledge. And, you know, you can read all of that if you would in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But we are called to be those like John the Baptist whose lives make specific pointing to one man only. So John the Baptist's appearance in the wilderness signaled the beginning of Israel's restoration. It signaled the beginning of the new creation. Number two, and still in verse one, in the wilderness, I need to move along, in the wilderness. You see, where, where is John right now? He's in the wilderness. 
Now, remember, when the Holy Spirit gives the authors of these books of the Bible revelation of what to write, he's not just filling words on a page so he can have a composition of 500 words or more like we used to do in college. You have to have this. and so He is specifically saying something in every word and in every description. So why does he say in the wilderness? Well, I think there probably are a couple of reasons, but let me share with you what I think maybe the major reason is. In the Old Testament, the wilderness is usually the place of chaos, of death, the place away from the presence of God, away from the presence of God. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, after Adam had sinned and after God had clothed them, what did he do? He drove them out from his presence, which was in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, where the presence of God was enjoyed with man face to face. God walked in the cool of the evening, you see, and he had face to face fellowship with man in those days. And man was driven away from God, Genesis 23 and 24, and they were put out of the garden, and the two cherubim, remember, were put at the gate of the garden to protect the gate of God's entrance. The gate, remember that the gate of God's entrance into Eden, and man was put into the field or into the wilderness. It is the place of chaos. It is the place where God's presence isn't there as it was in the garden, and God's presence then will have to be sought after and will have to be um, through certain rituals and in certain places. God will appear, but he's not there as he was in Eden, abiding with them regularly and face to face. This is a different kind of a place. This is the wilderness. And John the Baptist is in the wilderness making this presentation. So the wilderness was the place of God's judgment and of God's testing and sanctification of Israel. It was God's judgment of their sin and his use of sanctification. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 8, what does the Lord tell Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8? Let me explain to you why I led you all this way, all this way, what, for 40 years. Why is Israel in the wilderness? Because you remember in Numbers when the spies went across and looked at the land and they came back and 10 of them said, we can't do it because they're giants. And yet Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it because God has given it to us. Yes, they're giants. Yes, they're problems. Yes, they're difficulties. Yes, they're circumstances. Yes, there's opposition. Yes, but God has given us the land. Amen? That's the kind of men and women we need to be and we want to be and we're becoming more and more. And Israel said, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. I mean, we're afraid. And the Lord judged that generation that was 21 and under, over rather, and he judged them and he says, you shall not enter my promised land. And every one of them, Hebrew says in King James, their caucuses fell in the wilderness. They were, as it were, dead people in relation to entering into the promise of God. It was a judgment, but yet then also it was a place of testing and sanctification because what does the Lord say? I led you this way. He's talking to the new generation in Deuteronomy. This is the new generation that was raised up after that 
disbelieving generation died out. After the rebelliousness of that generation died out, this is the new generation. And he says, I led you this way, what? That you may learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word of God. I led you this way. And so the wilderness is a place of judgment for sin and rebellion and disobedience, but it is also a place of God's testing and God's sanctifying work. So we must see it that way. That's what the wilderness is. It would be a very interesting story, uh, a study rather, if you would go through the Old Testament. I think it's about 250 times. I could be wrong about the number, but it's a very, it's over 200 times. In the wilderness, in the wilderness, and see what it relates to and see how God uses this and what kind of circumstances going on in the wilderness. And so it reminds us of the expulsion of Adam and Eve, remember, from the garden, from the presence of God. But yet God's man is going to come into the wilderness and come into the place where the first Adam was sent as a judgment of his sin. The second Adam will go into the place where Adam's sin is judged to take Adam's people, God's people, out of that wilderness back into Eden. You see? So you see that. Jesus, we'll jump in ahead a little bit, is coming into the very place of man's disobedience, man's judgment, to take man's disobedience and judgment as we see it in the wilderness and to judge, be judged himself and to pay the penalty of the wilderness experience in himself so that in his resurrection he can take his people out of the wilderness of sin and the judgment of God and bring them back into the household of faith. Amen? That's what's happened here. So when you read these words in the wilderness and other phrases like this in the word, you have to remember what is God saying. Everything, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, everything of the New Testament must be read in light of Genesis 1 through 3. When you look at the first five books of the Bible, what is that called? The Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Everything of Genesis chapter 3, 7 on to the end of Deuteronomy has to be, if it's going to be understood biblically, has to be read in light of Genesis 1 through 3. And so here you have how the Pentateuch is constructed. After the garden experience and Adam is, uh, dis- Adam is judged and Eve, Eve are judged and they are sent out of the garden. From that point, the whole Pentateuch moves toward returning into the presence of God. It moves toward returning to the presence of God and it crescendos, if you would, in Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement. That is the high point of the presence of God. It's as if we are climbing a mountain. We are ascending into the presence of God. What does Psalm 24 say? Who will ascend into the hill of the Lord, the mountain of God? Remember the mountain, the garden of Eden was in a mountain or a hill, and the water flowed from it downward. We talked about that months ago. And so everything in the first part of the Pentateuch is ascending to chapter 16. We're coming into the presence of God. Remember through the Sinai and remember through 
tabernacle. And remember, through the Levitical legislation up to chapter 16, where in chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, sin is dealt with by the great faithful high priest. And then out of chapter 16, flowing downward, we're coming out from the presence of God, having been cleansed and sanctified and forgiven in chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. We're moving now from the presence of God back into the world to be the light of the world, to be the testimony of God upon the face of the world. So the Pentateuch is built like that. We come up to chapter 16 in the Pentateuch. And then we descend from the Pentateuch, chapter 16, into the world to be a declaration of who God is. That's what the Pentateuch is. That's how it's constructed. And you see that here, that when we come to Matthew or any of the Gospels, we're seeing the revelation. We're moving toward coming into the face of God or the presence of God because everything of the Levitical legislation was about one issue, being made fit for the presence of God. That's what that whole Leviticus first part of it is all about. The cleaning law, the cleansing laws, you know, and then the holiness laws going into the, into the nation, out into the world after Leviticus 16 as a holy people. And so that's what's going on in Matthew. We're seeing the revelation, the outworking of what is pictured in the Pentateuch. We're seeing it now worked out in Matthew chapters 1 through 28, all the way through. So I just say again, when we read the Bible, read it this way, and it will make better sense. It will be a comprehensive revelation of this God of ours. Amen? See it this way. So when you read it, you have the, oh, that's what that, oh, that's what, that's what that, that's how that ties together, rather than just individual stories and accounts. What is the message? Repent. Verse 2, God's message for his people who live in the wilderness is to do what? Repent. How do we come out of the wilderness? We must repent of sin. We must have repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. We come out of the wilderness by hearing the gospel, by hearing the good news, and Holy Spirit moves upon our hearts in Ezekiel 36, and he changes our hearts from stone to flesh. And we are given the Spirit who cleanses us and washes us. And as a result of that, we say yes. We repent. We turn away from our wilderness journey, our wilderness home, if you would. And we return to God's house through faith. We turn away from the wilderness by repenting. I don't want that anymore. I will not live that way anymore because God has now shown me himself. And I turn toward God and I go home to God. You see that? In Luke chapter 15, remember verse 17, when this boy who took the daddy's money and he wallowed around in the world and all that, and he finally came to his senses in verse 17, he says, I will arise and return to my father. Repenting. So the message of repentance is always the message of the kingdom of God. It has to do with a change of mind, as we've already said. The prophecy, verse 3. Matthew quotes from Isaiah. He said, this is done to fulfill the prophecy. What is a prophecy? It's in Matthew 3. Let me read Matthew 1, 2, and 3 for the more fulfilled, uh, the fuller part of that. In, Matthew, in Isaiah chapter 40, a new day opens in Isaiah chapter 40. The great uh, judgments have been given. Israel has been shown to be uh, God's rebellious people, and they are sent away into slavery. Remember that? That's chapters 1 through 39. And chapter 40, Isaiah 
by the Holy Spirit begins to say this, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is ended. How is it going to be ended? That her iniquity is pardoned. How is it going to be pardoned? That she has received from the Lord's hand a double for all of her sins. How is that going to happen? A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. How how is Israel's warfare ended? How is her iniquity pardoned? Because of this son who will be given, this son who was announced, this king, this Messiah, whom John will point to. That's how it's going to happen. What about the attire? Verse 4, And John wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. You see, John's clothing and his austere diet was reminiscent of Old Testament prophets, in particular, Elijah. And so listen to what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, I will send to you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And then he says in Matthew eleven fourteen, if you are willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who was to come. And so John the Baptist, again, Elijah was a great prophet who fought against the prophets of Baal. You remember Mount Carmel. And then he was the one who did great and mighty acts of deliverance and healing. And he was taken into heaven. You may remember that. He was taken up by in the chariot of God. And he is a picture of the work of preparation for the coming of Elisha, who is the prophet who probably more signifies the work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of, among the people. So here we have John the Baptist being a type of Elijah. He is the one who will prepare the way of the coming in of the Lord. The audience, verses 5 to 10, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were coming out to him. And then they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. I mean, wouldn't we have thought, hey, look, Thank God the religious people are turning to Jesus. Thank God. Come in. Come in. But listen to me. Listen to me. John doesn't fall for that. Why? Because he has a spirit of revelation and discernment and wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Don't believe that every person that confesses Jesus or every person who wants to be ministered to is of God's leading. The devil throws deceivers into here. Amen? John's First John says, test the spirits to see whether they be of God. So let us be a discerning and wise people. Yes, we're glad when folks come into the kingdom. Of course we are. But we don't want to do it in a pell-mell area. Whoever comes, let everybody come. And so we want to be a discerning people used by God in the specifics that the specific way that he wants to use us for the salvation of his people and be discerning who are those among us who are wolves, who are chaff, who are goats. Jesus did this regularly. 
And it is also for us to do that. We can't say and we should never say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to say, no, we have to have a discerning spirit. You notice what I said, a discerning spirit by the spirit. We're not saying in the natural we make decisions, but we are saying that when we are ministering, get God's mind. Hear from the Holy Spirit and do as he leads you to do, right? Now, if you're not sure, we share the gospel, and we're going to do that. But God will begin if we will ask, and if we will seek, and if we will receive. He will give us more and more understanding and revelation and discernment, and we will grow in this. We will grow in this. And you will find out that you are with someone who, quote, wants to know something about God, and the Holy Spirit will say, Don't share with him the way you would somebody else. Don't always share the same way with everybody. Do it according to the will of God. The Bible doesn't do it pell-mell. There are specific things that God says to some people and specific things that he does not say or that he does say in a different way to other people. Correct? That's just how the Bible is. And so the audience is coming out, Pharisees. And then John says, who warns you? They were all coming out. What was going on? You see, John understood that these men were not men who were coming out to really receive Christ or really receive repentance. I mean, to repent and really be forgiven of their sin. They weren't coming out for that purpose. They had a cloaked purpose, a deceived purpose. We discovered that these, there was a small group of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who had come out to spy, to spy. Their intention wasn't genuine repentance, but they were spying They were spies from Satan, if you would. The Sadducees were a small group of aristocratic and priestly group of people, men who had made peace with Rome. Religiously, they rejected anything they did not see specifically stated in the Torah as angels and the resurrection from the dead. They didn't see these things specifically stated. They are in there, but they didn't see them in a way that it was evident to them And so they said, we don't receive that. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So remember that. They were that group. And then the Pharisees were a larger group, mostly of businessmen, probably about 6,000 of them, who opposed Rome. Religiously, they were scrupulous about their adherence to the letter of the law or the Torah. You'll see I say Torah and law interchangeably, meaning the same thing. And so these two people came out to find out what John was doing. Not to find out is God in this and what should we do, but to be protective of what they were doing and who they, what they thought, and, and not being open to the ways of God. Now, obviously, many of these men after Pentecost did get saved. We remember that. But at this point, these men were hostile against the purposes of God. In their zeal, they supplemented the Torah. Remember the Pharisees. In their zeal to say, don't do any work on Sabbath. What does it mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. And they began to add detail upon. Okay, what that means is you can take so many steps, and if after that, you can't do any more because that's work. In their zeal, they said you can do this, but you can't do that. And so they took the law of God, and you remember the traditions of men, they added the Mishnah, which had over 600 little detailed regulations out how to carry out the law of God. 
and one of the primary oppositions that Je- uh, uh, one of the primary purpose of Jesus in his ministry was to oppose that man created legislation and we have to be careful today it is very easy for us I know it's easy for me to read the word and to say hey look this is what the word of God says what does it mean well I believe it's this this and that well we can say that but what we must not do is to inflict our personal opinions onto others if the word of God is not clear amen it's not clear now we know it's clear to assemble the church together we know that's clear isn't it is it God's will that the church assemble does he say anywhere that we should assemble where does he say that Hebrews forsake not what don't forsake the assembling of yourselves of yourself which is common amongst you know don't do that and I obviously and probably pretty permanently believe school of the word is part of that well, it is. This is part of the assembling together. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say your walk before God is affected if you don't come to school of the Word. But I do believe it is. Because I believe that the teaching of the Word of God, whether I'm teaching it, Bill's teaching it, Phil's teaching it, um, uh, Evan's te- whoever's teaching it, I do believe that the teaching of the Word of God and the learning of the Word of God corporately and individually does affect our walk with God. Amen. So, but I don't want to go too far and condemn people for that. Well, actually, I do, but I shouldn't. I do want to, but I shouldn't. (laughs) Now, so John perceived by the Spirit that these men did not come to be baptized, but to evaluate him and his message. Next week, we'll talk about the anointing of the Messiah and then the accreditation of the Messiah. See you next time.